Super sick. Intercourse. Conduct. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Treatment. Prevention. Sexual attraction. Sexually transmitted infection. Contraceptive. Sexual health health Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tom and this is the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast where we discuss all things related to sexual health. Today we are doing another professional profile. My guest today is Professor Basil Donovan. Basil has worked as a clinician and researcher in sexual health since the late 70s. He is currently a National Health and Medical Research Council Practitioner Fellow and a registered sexual health and public health physician. He heads the sexual health program at the Kirby Institute and is the past president of the International Society for STD Research. He has recently recently retired as a senior staff specialist here at Sydney Sexual Health Centre, where he has been involved in various capacities since it was called the Sydney STD Clinic back in 1979. So um, welcome to the podcast, Basil. Oh, thanks, Tom. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Did you, did you grow up here in Sydney? No, no, I'm a bush boy from down in the River Arena. I uh, was born on the Murray River and educated on the Murray River and came up to Sydney on my own at age 17 to go to medical school. And, and was sexual help something you were always interested in? No, I had no interest in <laughs> um, I sort of scraped through my medical degree. I wasn't particularly... Uh, impressed with medicine. I didn't really like it, to be honest. Uh, I had a horrible intern year at uh, Blacktown District Hospital in 1977, where uh, essentially I was working 140 hours a week, um, manning one of the busiest emergency departments in Australia on my own as an intern. So by the end of that year, uh, I decided I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. Oh. It was um, pretty grim. I, to this day, I'll never know how many people I killed, but that was uh, that was just the world in those days. Um, I, won't get, I don't want to get too political, but we had a premier called Bob Askin who essentially decided that no Labor voting part of his state would ha- have access to adequate health services, and he succeeded in that. Mm. That's pretty grim. So uh, what, what turned that around? Um, oh, well, I, then I did what I'm, I'm forever grateful that I did. I took a gap year and I headed off to Europe for 12 months to follow the motorcycle races. <laughs> and had a wonderful time, got to see lots of Europe and North Africa for a year, and then Japan and India. Then I came back and I realised, oh, I suppose I should do some work now. So I was doing various locums um, while I was studying naturopathy, because it was the 1970s. Uh, and the one, the one thing that doing naturopathy taught me is that Naturopathy is absolute crap. Okay. <laughs> it's all made up by people with chips on their shoulders who really don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, in the various locums, I stumbled into the old Sydney STD clinic. And it just struck me. It was just such an interesting place. Um, it was completely different to the type of medicine I'd done before. 
Uh, a lot of the colleagues were really, really lovely people, and I particularly liked the patients. Hmm. And I suppose back then it was referred to as venerology, I guess, the, uh, the field. And it wasn't called anything in those okay. days. In those days there was no specialty yeah. in, uh, in Australia. Um, it, jobs like doing locums at, at the STD clinic were the sort of thing you um, did to fill in time before you went on to become a proper doctor. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was no career structure, there was no training. You just got, you just pulled up your sleeves and started seeing the customers. And um, there wasn't even really a manual. Uh, the main educators in the clinic were the nurses. The nurses told the doctors what to do because the nurses tended to stick around longer than the doctors. Um, but by lunchtime on the first day, I decided this is for me. They were all good fun. <laughs> uh, Every patients were teaching more me more than I was teaching them. Uh, so I, I learned a whole lot about cultures that were not visible down in the Riverina. Um, you know, I'm, I met people like sex workers and gay men and all these people with various labels that, uh, if you like, quite often labels dehumanise people. And I was quite surprised to find they were just as human as anybody else, and that just transformed me. And I thought, there's a lot to learn here. You started working in the area uh, in the late 70s. Soon after that, I guess there was the first AIDS patient diagnosed at St Vincent's Hospital uh, in October in 1982. Not quite. Oh, is it? That's the party line. Yeah, I, I lasted a couple of years on and off at the Sydney STD clinic, mm-hmm. but the clinic was revolting in those days. It was literally a toilet. Okay. It had open urinals running between the consulting rooms. Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, and we campaigned for it to improve the services, but the government wasn't going to do anything to improve it. Mm-hmm. So four of the doctors at the old Sydney STD clinic and the senior nurse all picked up their uh, suitcases one day and we headed off and opened our own private practice in Darlinghurst, uh, which is now the Taylor Square Private Clinic. Um, you know, they say the first case was diagnosed at St Vincent's in 1982. No, the, the, there were many people who had, had illnesses. It was pretty obvious they had AIDS. Uh, dating back to 1981 and were being managed by people like us and various GPs around Darlinghurst, King's Cross, Surrey Hills. Um, There was just a particular event where someone got formally diagnosed uh, and it wasn't, they weren't actually, they were probably diagnosed by their general practitioner, a guy called Harry Mitchell Moore in King's Cross, but then they then referred to St Vincent's. But of course, and then took the claim. That's life. Um, but yeah, we, we had hundreds of patients that we suspected were um, affected by whatever it was that caused AIDS in those days. Because um, I was there, because I was there from before the beginning. Even that's not true. You know, I remember what I had one patient 
1982, who clearly had AIDS. Um, he had a recurrence of his lymphoma and he, in fact, in retrospect, he'd been infected at least since 1976. So it, it had been around a lot longer than we suspected. Um, and in retrospect, we now know that it was being imported from Africa into Belgium in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it just became obvious when the numbers became large enough. But yeah, he was a bit unlucky. He was a, an Australian diplomat with a Haitian boyfriend. <laughs> and um, so he was one of the earliest affected. Uh, I've met many very impressive people particularly his patients, sort of sad to watch them as young teenagers deciding that they're coming out and trying to warn them about the dangers and what they should be doing and watching them not really listening to you because they're uh, enjoying their new lifestyle. That's human nature. Uh, a lot of people, once they got HIV, they just grew with it, you know, it made them bigger people. Uh, but uh, it was pretty grim up until about 1996-97 when people stopped dying. And what was the general response from clinicians and, and politicians at the time? Uh, clinicians varied. Some some clinicians said, "Right, we better we better tackle this." Or you know, I'm here in this job, and that's what the cases they're going to present here. So I better learn what I can. Uh, a lot of people in the STD or venereology field just left. They thought, "Oh, that's that's a bit scary. That's too hard for me," yeah. and they went away. Thank goodness. Okay. Um, but you, you weren't tempted? Or? No, no, no. We, uh, we basically, well, we, even the earliest efforts were research-driven because you've got to remember they hadn't found a virus. They didn't even know if it was an infectious disease at that stage. So our first thing to do was start a big research cohort with... The only thing we knew was that it disproportionately affected gay men and uh, drug injectors and Haitians, <laughs> and we didn't have a lot of Haitians, so we recruited a thousand gay men and um, just set set them up to got got them to um, join our study. They filled in questionnaires regularly. We collected blood off them. Nothing much, nothing much to test them for. Though we were, we were measuring their T cells or their immune system at the time, so. and uh, and basically that research cohort taught us all all we need to, to know about HIV. I suppose something which is kind of topical at the moment is you know they've just uh, released the um, It's a Sin TV show. Do you think that those sort of representations in media are kind of accurate of uh, of um, time? Yeah, it's been a bit of a struggle for me to watch It's a Sin. Um, it's, too, it's too accurate. It actually, it's very good at uh, portraying the sort of emotions and the, it, it takes you through those very early days uh, where people were terrified, 
perhaps behaving irrationally. Uh, the health system was often very hostile. Um, and it, you know, it took us a few years to work out what was actually causing it in the first place. Um, but yeah, I had to struggle. I struggled to watch that because uh, the the stories were too true. I don't think there were no exaggerations. That was all real. And so, um, how did you and, and the other people working in the HIV response uh, stay resilient during that time? Um, oh, I think just pooling your experience, teaching each other, uh, doing research, um, trying to work out what was going on, because if you really want to make someone frightened, uh, make make sure they don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, so to reduce the fear, the idea was to chase knowledge or create knowledge. Um, and I think that, because I, I remember in those days, you know, they talk about conspiracy theories, visiting friends up the north coast, you know, all old, old hippies who, you know, by 1983, they were absolutely convinced that AIDS was caused by a, an experiment conducted by the CIA that had gone wrong. And I'm going, hey, there's nothing new in this world, is there? <laughs> And I had to explain to them that the CIA isn't that smart. <laughs> it wouldn't know how to create HIV. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, conspiracy theories are the result of people feeling power, people feeling powerless and essentially they're pretty ignorant and they stay ignorant because they, as soon as they adopt the theory, they go out of their way not to actually learn anything about what's going on. Yeah, probably one of the most impressive characters was a medical student who was sitting in with me called Brett Tyndall. Okay. Brett was a, originally a speech therapist, but he enrolled in medicine at um, Newcastle University and he wanted to learn a bit, a bit about HIV, so he, came and he was sitting in with me at the Taylor Square Clinic back in the 80s. And... Um, We went for a drink after work. Kinsella's was the bar, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and he proceeded to get very sick in front of me. And uh, he was basically the world's first fully documented case of what we call the primary HIV illness. He um, got incredibly ill, put, put him in a hosp into a hospital that night in the space of a couple of days because we'd, be, we'd been measuring it before then, before he got infected. In the space of a couple of days, his immune system had collapsed. And uh, anyway, Brett soldiered through. He donated litres and litres of blood because we needed to know what was going on in his blood and he was happy to donate it. <laughs> uh, he dropped out of medical training and went on to do a PhD on the primary HIV illness and became a world authority on it. And he was, he was the first um, research office, officer at the uh, what's now called the Kirby Institute, which was then called the National Centre in HIV. And he, he was a real leader. He taught me 
uh, a lot about the political dynamics in the gay scene. Um, I think he taught David Cooper, my ex, my late boss, a lot about this is how you handle. You have to every infectious disease or every disease has to be handled within a society, and that's what he was good at doing. That this is how you go about it. If you don't work with the society, you don't get anywhere. You know, there is no magic bullet. So he was a spectacular character. We lost him years ago. And um, so, so I guess talking about the Kirby Institute and your work there, you worked in sexual health more broadly than HIV. Mm. Uh, so, so what are some of the achievements you're most proud of for your, your work and research? Probably my proudest thing is listening to my customers. Yeah, once, once you learn that, that they aren't as stupid as some doctors like to think they are, if you actually listen, they'll tell you what's going on. Uh, that's how we managed to discover the primary HIV illness. You know, that, that had been around for years. It was well known in the gay, gay scene as the Hawaii syndrome because people would go for their annual holidays to California or New York. And in those days, planes couldn't get right across the Pacific. They, used to, they had to stop in Hawaii. Yeah. And the ones that were too sick to proceed would get put off the plane in Hawaii on the way back. Did they have some sort of facility there, like, like to, to care for them? or was it No, so they just had a general hospital. But, okay. um, yeah, they were, they were too sick to, to fly on, onto Sydney. Um, and the illness would last a couple of weeks, and they'd be in the hospital there, and then they'd get on the plane and get, finally get back to Sydney. This, remember, this is before blood tests. Um, so I guess when our, us discovering the primary HIV illness was basically our, our customers were telling us what to watch for. Mm-hmm. So they'd described the illness long before the doctors did. Yeah. So is that already that community awareness out there? Yeah. And the same with... Other communities, you know, the sex workers, the the organised sex workers were able to work out what was likely to work. You know, the great Julie Bates, Dame Julie Bates, as we call her, um, she has a bit of a business head and she managed to negotiate with influential brothel owners that, you know, that safe sex was the way to go. So we were amongst the first countries to have a have a safe sex industry. Well, I suppose uh, I suppose condoms at the time as a risk reduction strategy was a very um, novel thing as well. Like uh, I guess it was mainly used for the pregnancy, and so the idea that the gay men would use that. Condom, uh, condoms were very badly received when they first came when they were first first mooted. Um, I had one patient who loved the idea because he was a rubber fetishist. <laughs> but only one patient. <laughs> Everybody else hated them. A lot of that was overlaid with the fact that in those days, um, if you were young and gay, you, you were still very reluctant to admit that to yourself. So a lot of these guys would have sex with one or two women just to see if they could cure themselves. <laughs> Um, and because of the contraception issue, they would use condoms. And 
shall we say, they didn't like the sex. And in the process, they really didn't like condoms and what they connoted. You know, the link, the link, so to them, that was condoms were a, um, an anti-pregnancy measure and symbolised an event in their lives that they would rather forget. So there was a, a serious reluctance to use condoms early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and how was getting that message out there? I mean, it must have been, been difficult. It was very difficult. Uh, that, that was driven by the precursors of ACON, you know, the, the, the couple of clever Australian gay community people. They were actually much better at it than the, than the Americans. The Americans, all the HIV messages or the AIDS messages were very sex negative. You know, don't do this, don't do that. They even banned oral sex in the States. Um, and at least the gay men here had the wherewithal to go, well, if someone told me that, would I listen to them? Uh, they thought that through and they went, no, I wouldn't ask anyone to do anything I wouldn't do myself. So the, uh, so the messages were much more realistic than, the, than in the American scene where America, they were just absolutists. They were just... Silly in some instances, which is why they the messages failed. They were much more often than in Australia. A couple of my most interesting papers I wrote were actually given to him by a taxi driver. Oh, why is that? Oh, I was going to um, Sydney Airport, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, where are you going?" And I said, "Bangkok." And he went, "Oh, I love Bangkok." And then he launched into his taste for the for the bar girls and so and and I'm going don't don't you worry about AIDS and he's oh no no I do this and, and he list, he strung off a list of the mostly ineffectual strategies that he used to avoid avoid catching AIDS as he called it um, and I thought oh. That's an interesting th- thing to do some research into. Um, and what sort of strategies were people using? Um, well, when I, when I, not just him, but a whole lot of other people. Uh, when, I, when I pooled all the different strategies, there's 57 different things people do to avoid infections. And that might begin with, uh, don't bother, don't dare go out, just stay at home and get drunk. <laughs> And I've known people who've used that as an active safe sex strategy. Um, choose, be careful where you go to. Uh, be selective about who you have sex with. <laughs> the paradox is the criteria that one person uses to select uh, a partner is, might be completely the opposite to what another person, another criterion someone uses. You know, it's all... Uh, most of the strategies are notoriously unreliable, um, but we need to recognise that that's what people put their faith in. I suppose it's not that different to the way a lot of people approach reducing risk around sexual practices now. No, no, no. None of the practices have gone away. <laughs> um, and, and some of them are institutional. Like the, the, the military used to have a deliberate policy, written down policy, 
to make sure that by the time the troops went to bed at night, they were absolutely exhausted. That way they wouldn't have any interest in each other. You know, they were so scared of um, the troops getting too too intimate with each other. Um, and some boys' boarding schools had the same policies. Make sure they go to bed exhausted. Uh, these are... Some of, the, some of the strategies are just absolutely hilarious. That's, uh, that's why I love this field. It's, it's really, uh, it's like people were made to entertain you. Yeah, the old clinic's changed a lot. Do you know much about the history of the clinic? No. It used to be down at Circular Quay, mm-hmm. um, there by international treaty. Okay, what's that? Uh, the Brussels Agreement of 1924 okay. says that every um, every major port in the world should have a VD clinic okay. for the sailors. So it was actually set up primarily to service international sailors. Yeah. So modern, by modern logic, you'd probably put the clinic at Sydney Airport, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, and, and so all, all the great clinics of the world were always right in the... and the oldest ones are all in the ports. Yeah. So Rotterdam and Liverpool and England and... Um, So they tip historically in the most interesting part of town. No, same with Amsterdam. Um, probably it wasn't until World War One that there was any interest at all in the STIs. That was only because it laid up armies. <laughs> you know, when when you're losing a quarter of your a quarter of your troops because they can't piss. <laughs> You're starting to go, oh, hang on, this is serious. Um, yeah, well, I suppose some of the early treatments and like mercury and that sort of thing, like. They're all worse treatments than that. Okay. What sort of things? Well, if there was a medic. Back in the 18th century, if there was a medical specialty that looked up breast eyes, it was the surgeons. Okay. One of the main symptoms of an STI is urethritis, you know, an inflamed urethra. That's what makes you drip. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a thing called the surgical mind. To the surgical mind, you can't have urethritis if you don't have a urethra. Do you get where I'm getting? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, the cure is worse than the disease. <laughs> they used to put this. I've seen one. Okay. I went to an exhibition in Melbourne back in the eighties. I was like, oh, scared. It's like a urethral sound. Okay. You slide it up the urethra. Mm-hmm. You then turn a dial on the end, and these little blades come out. Oh, it is. Okay. And then you get about six burly men to sit on top of the patient. And you rip it out. Oh. 
So you think you've had bad days? <laughs> um, things have definitely improved. <laughs> things have definitely improved, but it's funny how you still hear there's still kids out there who are scared of the old umbrella. You know, their grandfathers told them about it. Okay. Even though it hasn't been used for 150 years, mm-hmm. the corporate memory of it hasn't gone away. <laughs> yeah. if, if someone does that to you, you never forget. Mm-hmm. And the story travels fast. Yeah, no, it's a funny old medical discipline. But yeah, probably the first ever research in STIs was done by the military. Mm-hmm. And for military reasons. And I'm, but I'm sort of proud. One of the last patients I saw before I uh, left the Sydney Sexual Health Centre was this, this young kid. I don't know if you know what hit him. He was about 17 or 18, a young gay, gay kid. And he, he came in. I did a comprehensive sexual health screen, vaccinated him against hepatitis A, hepatitis B, human papillomavirus <laughs> and gave him a script for prep and I'm going the world has changed a lot in the last 30 years yeah, absolutely. when when I first started we didn't we didn't have any of those things none of the vaccines none of the treatments on, on prep um, you know it's been such a game changer i guess for communities now like yeah. like like in such a change in people's sexual behaviors and uh oh it was it was a real game changer i, I got um one of the guys i work with he he he, he uh, documented that for a lot of gay men their life has been a misery since hiv came along just 30 years of fear you know and suddenly and even I saw that amongst my patients. They were walking in the door with a smile on their face for the first time in 30 years. They were, they were no longer scared of sex, which is a pretty sad, sad place to be. Because um, there, you know, there were quite a few people who at the first mention of AIDS in 1981 literally shut the door and never had sex again. Mm-hmm which is not a, good, not a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's not a healthy, positive sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So, so prep's been a game changer like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the impressive thing is watching, not only the gay community, but also it's helped with the health professions. Where the, eventually they sort of didn't like the idea of putting antiviral drugs out there in the community. And but it works so well, and they now understand why you do it. Mm-hmm. And I was actually reading last week. There's a million people in the world at the moment on prep. Wow. Okay. And it's going up rapidly. So um, I've asked this question of a few people on the podcast who have mentioned that uh, you've been the most influential person on their career. Mm-hmm. So uh, who are the three people who've been most influential for you? Um. Professionally, probably three people. David Cooper, uh, who was a couple of years older than me, and he was 
an immunologist at St Vincent's, right in the middle of the target. Um, and he, de- he decided professionally, look, you know, I can't run away from this. So if I'm going to do it, I better do it properly. And uh, he was in a bizarre situation where he was learning on the job, uh, where the, there were very few drugs and we were desperately trying to access drugs from overseas. And he was setting up clinical trials so that we could have access to drugs pretty well as early as anywhere in the world. Um, and that was 20 years of hard work. Um, and you know, he didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what's going on. We, they were the funniest talks he used to give where he, his most common re- response was, I don't know, <laughs> you tell me. You know, he was, so he was very good at pooling the experience of all of us who were all floundering in the early days when, when the drugs were pretty toxic and not as effective as we, as we would have liked. Um, there was a lot of uh, politics where the community people were going, uh, with some justification, were going, you're poisoning us, <laughs> you know, this isn't right. Um, so it got pretty tense there. And, and David was a bit of a, a rock in a storm there. He was very... Um, so he was influential. Um, Brett Tindall, just for what he taught me about his community, um, Dame Julie Bates, for what she taught me about her communities. Uh, but probably the most influential people have been my patients. Um, so you've held a lot of leadership positions, both in Australia and internationally. Uh, do you have any reflections on leadership in the HIV and sexual health fields? Uh, sexual health is a very interesting area, particularly for doctors, and I think nursing too. It, it's, it's often a second choice. It doesn't occur, because it's not a large specialty, it doesn't have much of a profile in the medical schools, you know, where it's all physicians and surgeons. And, uh, but it's often people who worked in, in something else. You know, they've been GPs or they've been public health physicians or um, hospital-based infectious disease physicians and they drift towards sexual health just because it's a more rounded, uh, holistic specialty than the others. You're not, you're not dedicated to just one organ system. You're actually looking after um, in the whole person, if not the whole community. And that's part of the job. But public health focus. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was something that was invented in Australia. You know, the little training that I did in in the UK, they ran very much in the internal physician model. In fact, they had just changed their name to genitourinary medicine uh, when I went there, which was the dumbest thing they could have done. Because within two years of them changing their name to genitourinary medicine, uh, their two major preoccupations were hepatitis and HIV, neither of which have any significant genitourinary complications or implications. So it was just a dumb name. Even the term sexual health came from Australia. Okay. Yeah. The f- 
the first sexual health clinic in the world, or the first clinic to call itself that, was Parramatta. And what brought that about? I have no idea. It was, the director was John Moran at the time. He was an ex-military doctor. Yeah. Military doctors are another source of, traditionally a source of sexual health physicians. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even though you, you join the army so you can fix up wounded soldiers, you actually spend very little time fighting and most of the time you're sitting around catching STIs. <laughs> and so the doctors to go, oh, well, change of career, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know where he, where he got the term from, but uh, it's, spreading, it's spreading around the world. Most, most of my colleagues in the UK now prefer to call themselves, to call themselves sexual health physicians. Um, which, I, yeah, that's very much an Australian invention. Even when I changed, I changed the name of the Sydney STD Clinic to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre, and all the old physicians went, oh, that sounds a bit lightweight. It's got the word health in it, you know, it doesn't sound serious. And I'm going, mm, okay, <laughs> you know, whatever you, whatever you want. Um, but, I, yeah, I was quite pleased to change the name. I didn't really mind the term venereology. Yeah. Has a bit of a ring to it. Mm-hmm. Has a bit of a ring to it. Yeah. Well, do you know what it means? Uh, no, not really. It comes from the goddess Venus, the goddess of love. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's one theory. One of the other meanings, if you get an old dictionary, is venery is actually uh, another name for hunting. <laughs> I prefer not to use that. I prefer to think of it as... Think of myself as a love doctor. But yeah, it's the only medical specialty that's based around a behaviour and not around a um, around an organ. Well, it's one of a wave of medical of medical specialties like addiction medicine and so on, where it's not dedicated to an organ, it's dedicated to a behaviour or a community. So, uh, well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Oh, pleasure, Tom. You've been listening to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast, where I've been chatting with Professor Basil Donovan. To stay up to date with the latest information in sexual health, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. The links are in the description. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to share and subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and have fun.